Hello, this is Tim Conboy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. Amen, amen. You know, just to show you, I'm going to be, um, where am I? Oh, Acts. What chapter? 17. You guys are awesome. You're like clairvoyant. By the way, shout out to my beautiful wife watching in Virginia. So Ashley graduated from the police academy this uh, past Thursday. And it was, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, you give it up for Ashley. Amen. Yeah, there was, there was quite a, there was 80 that had graduated. And of course, Loudoun County is large. You know, got Dulles Airport. So you got airport cops, you got metro police, you got college police, you got uh, town police, and you got county sheriffs. And so it was quite a, quite a big ordeal. And, and actually, out of all these people, there were four vice presidents. She was one of them. And so it was like, good for her. So great shout out to Ashley. And, uh, and Jerry will be there for the next four weeks. I will wither away to 190, I hope. <laughs> well, you know, this morning, I was just talking to Ron after our invitation, and he was sharing that he had three dreams last night, and in the dreams, God had spoken to him, and he was to speak to John Ercole, and he was also to get to Linda Woolham and speak to her, that God was going to move today and be prepared for that. Well, he did not get to Linda before the service, but while we were singing, Linda came up to me and she goes, I just feel like God wants to deliver people today. And I said, well, let's go. And so the Lord just was moving and praise the Lord. That, that's what we want. We want to flow as the Spirit flows, right? We don't want to self-generate something. We don't want to put God in a corner that He has to perform and something. No, we just, His Spirit will tell us what to do, when to do it, and we just can't be tethered to a time schedule. Amen? So I know a lot of you may be thinking, great, we'll be out here by 10. No, we're not tethered to a time schedule. <laughs> just kidding. We'll see what we can do. Welcome back, Chuck Yeager, Colonel. Colonel's back from Cuba. Amen. Been down in Cuba the past ooh, six months or more. How long? Nine months. Wow. It's been a while. I see that tan on you. I know you must have been suffering along the water there. <laughs> but uh, it's good to have him back, and, and it was fun to watch him on Facebook all that. The Lord was just using him down there. It's awesome. Okay, are we ready? Got a few fun facts with Tim today. It won't be on the screen, but we'll, we'll get to them. In the meanwhile, verse 16, we're going to pick it up, and we've got a lot to cover, so let's giddy up. Now, while Paul waited for them, who's them? Silas, Timothy, was sent. Remember, they were in Thessalonica, then they went down to Berea, and then uh, essentially riots broke out, you know, the basic thing. They were chased out. Well, he had Silas and Timothy uh, go back to Thessalonica, and so he went down to Athens. So while he waited for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. They, they just 
everything. They're saturated, in other words. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He always went in the synagogue first and talked to them. And But it's interesting, the ones that should have been reaching the city themselves, the Jews, uh, he had to go into synagogue, talk them, and speak to them concerning their own Messiah. Uh, so, of course, he's Jewish himself. He was in the synagogue, reasons with the Jews, and with the Gentile worshipers. So these were folks from Athens that worshipped the God of Judaism and the God of the Bible. And also in the marketplace, and he did this daily with those who happened to be there. So when he would pass by, he would speak to them. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Okay. Okay, there it is. Sorry, I looked away. Oh man, where was I? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming a foreign God because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is also known as Mars Hill. I think Mars Hill is a little easier to say. Amen? So they took him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Why? Verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Wow, there's, there's quite, I mean, in Brown County, we used to have the liar's bench in town, you know that? And people would sit there and they would tell stories and you, you pretty much had to figure out, were they lying about something or was it true? And uh, this is a little different than that. The whole city was all about just hearing something new or telling something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things you are very religious. Notice, very gentle. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So they were polytheistic and they worshipped many gods. Of course, they had their Greek gods and they added to it the Roman gods. And so they worshipped all these gods, but in case they were missing any god, they said, you know what, we need to erect an altar, and we will worship the god that we're missing. We don't know who it is, or else we wouldn't be missing, missing him. So we'll just call him the unknown god. And, of course, it would just be an altar. There would be nothing on there, no statue or anything, because he's unknown to them. So he sees this. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him... I got some good news. I proclaim Him to you. I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in the temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all breath and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men. So from one blood, we know Adam and Eve, from one blood he's made every nation of men to dwell in the face of the earth and, at, and has determined 
their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That's quite interesting, isn't it? So he said, I've created all the nations of the earth, and when their nation would come in, the timing of their rise as well as the time of their fall. And so I prepared their timing and I prepared their boundaries. And so it's interesting that these nations have been known and prepared even before time. Verse 27, So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him. It's like they'll look into darkness and trying to find a light switch. He said, I do this so they'll look and they'll try to find Me. He said, they'll grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. So you can imagine a very dark room and someone's standing right next to you, but you're trying to find them and you're just like, I know you're there somewhere, and yet they might be standing right next to you. But it's, you're in such darkness, you don't know where they are. And that's the idea. He said, man, man is in such blindness, such darkness, that they just walk around and they're trying to find God, and yet He's standing right there next to them. He goes on to say, For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, For we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, in other words, God made us, we didn't make God. Notice this whole city is full of gods that they made, the gods of their own hands, and then they worshiped the gods that they created here in these statues. And he said, no, it's the other way around. You, you made a God in your image and worship Him, but God made you in His image and wants you to worship Him. They had it backwards. He goes on to say, Therefore, since we were the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, like your statues. Something shaped by art and man's devices. In other words, you didn't, don't think that you made God and now this is God. It's the other way around. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You're going this way. Repent means 180 degree turn. Stop going this way. Now God commands you to repent. He doesn't ask. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't say, I think it's a good idea. No, He goes, no, I command you, stop. Turn around. Come this way. That's what this literally means. Because He has appointed a day of which He will judge the world in righteousness. You don't hear much of the judgment of God anymore, but let me tell you something. There is still a judgment day coming. And God will judge in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. So you see, He's leading up to introducing His name as Jesus, but as soon as He gets to the resurrection, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, ah, we'll hear you again on this matter. So they didn't dismiss it. They just say, eh, I'm, I'm not going to mock you, but not, I just can't wrap my head around it. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius and the Areopath. Yeah, you see that guy? But you notice it's the same word for Mars Hill. So he was one that was in charge of being at Aramars Hill that would direct everybody in this knowledge that they were always seeking. And it says, a woman named Demarius and others with them. So apparently these, uh, this gentleman and this woman are very well known and they're mentioned here in our text. 
the message is gentle persuasion, and we see this in our text, but I also see with it the movement. What moves people? What moves these people that, that we read in our text? And there's a number of different. We see a, a group, a large group of people, even including the foreigners. Uh, we see Epicureans. We see Stoics. Uh, we see Paul. And it's interesting that God starts to reveal what moves them. And then, really, what stops us? What moves us? What stops us? And, and you know, sometimes you may be moved in a direction. Maybe, let's say the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And, and moving you to speak to someone. Or moving you to respond for prayer. But yet, you're moved to go, but then you may be stopped from going by fear. You know, it's like Isaac Newton's law that says, when there is an object in motion, says to every action rather, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And that's true with our movement. With every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So as the Spirit of God may be moving you to do something, the devil may be saying, no, don't do it. And fear comes against you. Or maybe it's, maybe the Spirit's saying, no, don't do it. And inside we say, yeah, it's okay, I can do it. So there's this movement, this action, this motion. I think of Jesus when he saw the multitudes, the Scripture says, he saw them wandering as sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion upon them. So he sees them, and then he is moved to respond out of compassion. In our text, you'll see Paul, we'll get to it a little later, but Paul is moved, it said his spirit was provoked within him, and it moved him to action. And now he had other forces working against him, saying, no, don't do this, but yet he took action. Well, we're just going to jump along real quick here. Notice verse 18, the encounter. It's what I call the encounter. In verse 18, there were certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him, being Paul. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Probably what you say every Sunday. He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Interesting, they already knew Jesus was the topic, and or the person, and they already knew the topic was resurrection. And when he speaks of Mars Hill, he'll bring it back, he'll get as far as resurrection, uh, before he introduces the name Jesus, but they already dismiss it. Alright, we're back where we started, in other words. We see here that the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered Paul. The word here, encountered, means to encounter in a hostile sense. So they weren't, hey, welcome to the neighborhood, so glad you're here. No, they're like, hey, what are you doing here? They're wondering, they're not happy that he's there, and they're wondering, what's this guy doing muscling in on our turf? Matter of fact, again, we see when someone is intimidated, or someone is threatened by someone else, they often will resort, again, to name-calling or insulting. Especially if they cannot engage in a logical, reasonable discussion, or if they know they're not winning the argument. And if they feel like they're not winning, or, or they don't even want to discuss it, rather than engage logical reason, instead they turn around and start name-calling, and start insulting. And whenever we see this, whenever you talk to someone, whenever you encounter someone, uh, you're going to have that motion, but you're going to have the opposite reaction come at you at times. The question is, how will you respond to that? 
How do you respond uh, when someone comes at you and vilifies you and starts name-calling, starts insulting? The key in this, and the defense in this, is to avoid being sucked in emotionally. No one likes to be called names, right? How many like to be called names? Are you guys with? Don't make me come down there. We don't like to be called names, especially a babbler. And, and what happens is when, that, when we're insulted or a name comes at us, you know what we want to do? We want to fight fire with fire. We want to say, oh yeah? I know I am, but what am I? No, that's not right. How's that go? We want to insult them back. But Proverbs tells us, answer not a fool according to his folly. In other words, don't do it the same way he does it, lest you become like him. So, he says, if you're dealing with someone that's going to start vilifying you and insulting you and, 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 and calling you names because they can't reason through an argument or they're losing an argument, he says, rather they get sucked in emotionally. Don't answer them the way they're speaking to you, lest you become like them. Those go to higher ground, in other words. Scripture also says in Proverbs, a soft answer turns away wrath. But grievous words stir up anger. So you're in this discussion. He says the best thing to do is give a soft answer. Be gentle. Don't give a grievous, you know, they, oh, you, who is this babbler? Me a babbler? Look at you guys. Look at your philosophy. You're the babbler. You think that would, was, would be a soft answer? No, those would probably be grievous words that would stir up anger. So the Lord says, avoid these things. The point is, the philosophers tried to bully Paul. And they tried to bait him into an argument. It's interesting, I like this word babbler. You know what the word means? We say, well, doesn't it come from the root word to babble? From the Tower of Babel. The English word comes from the Tower of Babel, to babble on about something. But this word babbler means seed picker. Now, doesn't that clear it up? <laughs> seed picker. It literally means one who seeks to pick up scraps by, from a passerby. One who seeks to pick up scraps from a passerby. Now, if you were walking through a city park, uh, you may see behind people, some pigeons walk behind them. And at a little distance, they're waiting for scraps to fall off. You know, a piece of hot dog bun falls and, and off they go. It was kind of funny this morning swinging through McDonald's, grabbing a cup of coffee. And, and I looked over, and there was a starling that had a pretty good chunk of bread in his beak. And a couple other little birds were chasing him, like, not flying, just on their feet, going after him. And he's running with his little bread. And a little piece fell off, and the little bird behind him went, oh, grabbed that piece. And I said, you seed picker! <laughs> I mean... It was in living color. I just watched it happen. I was like, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's what this means. It's the idea to come behind. So in other words, when we think of this, and we think of this insult that they gave him, what they're saying is this was their t territory. This was their pool of followers. And Paul is simply trying to come in and pick up the scraps followers behind them to add to his collection. So what moved them to 
insult him and, and really encounter him in a hostile way and call him, oh, you're just trying to pick up the scraps, which they're really saying, which belong to us. These are our followers, and here you come infringing on our territory. So what was it that moved them? It was their pride. It was their jealousy. It was their envy. It's like, what are you doing here? It was also their fear of losing their followers. They said, man, we got to stop this guy. He can't be doing this. And, and so they're moved by this fear. And I think they're also moved by embarrassment. They'd be embarrassed if they were proven wrong by this guy, the seed picker that comes along. And then people start following him. And if they start following what Paul's teaching, that in turn is saying, we don't believe what you are teaching. Embarrassment. Pride. Jealousy. Envy. Sometimes these will move us. And it certainly moved them. By the way, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about these epics or Epicureans and Stoics. Wouldn't you like to know some fun facts with Tim? All right. If you were to go to the academyofideas.com and look under Stoicism versus Epicureanism, it's fun reading. You know, if you really want a bedtime reading, you can always go to the Letters of a Stoic by Seneca. He'll also, it's, it's fun, you know, it's like, yeah, well, whatever. And they call him the babbler. But anyways, two, these are two main Greek schools of thought. Two Greek philosophies. Both recognize, this is interesting, the two separate schools both recognize the goal of philosophy to trans, for the transformation of self into a sage. So they believed in philosophy, this love of wisdom and knowledge, to then transform them into what they call the sage. And you know how sages always cleaned up in the morning to present their hair and everything. They used a sagebrush. Wow, you guys are bad. But a sage. Alright, here's what a sage is. One who has a... I love this definition. The sage was one who has attained a perfection of being, which is, however, unattainable to us fallible creatures. Therefore, like wisdom, an unrealizable ideal. Sounds like philosophy, isn't it? So their whole goal is to be transforming oneself into a sage. However, a sage is this per, position of, of blah, perfection of being, by their definition, was also unattainable. So he says, well, you can't really get there, but this is what we believe. This is a 40,000 foot view. Nevertheless, both groups, although these ideals can never be attained, they can be progressed towards. And the progression towards a greater state of perfection of being was the goal of both philosophies. You follow me? So in other words, they'll never get there, but it's the progression of trying to get there which makes them even better. Are you with me? Both of these schools believe this. That's how they were in common, uh, but this is how they were in contrast. The Epicureans, and Epicurean means helper or defender, the Epicurean, on a 40,000 foot view, focus on the importance of training their desires. They believed man is miserable because they desire things that they need not desire. 
If man would learn to desire only those things which are necessary to us as human beings, such as food and shelter, we would be bathed in the pure joy of being. Just a state of being. Today, some call it the Zen. Reach a point of Zen. In other words, learn just how pleasurable it is to just to exist. Such as being of contentment. Such a being of contentment would rival the gods in happiness. In other words, you just say, Oh, I got my food and shelter. I'm so good. I'm suppressing any other desires that tell me otherwise. I only desire food. I only desire the basic necessities of life. Well, along came the Stoics. Stoic means portico. Portico means porch. Hmm. These are the porch people. The porch people come along, and they would go to the porticos, and they would wax eloquent of their belief system. Because they tried Epicureanism, which long as Stoics believe that since life has many troubles, poverty, death, and other. Happiness is not merely a matter of ceasing to desire things we need not desire. In other words, what the Epicureans believe. Happiness isn't just suppressing those desires. But here's their definition of happiness. But to trust the Roman goddess Fortuna, F-O-R-T-U-N-A, goddess of luck and fortune. Hmm. So trust the goddess Fortuna and wait. Since Fortuna decides whether a terrible ill must come upon us, in many cases there is little we can do except wait and hope the terrible storm will soon pass and not wipe us away for eternity. What is required, therefore, to be happy and successful in life is courage, moral strength, and, of course, wisdom. And like I said, you can go on and read the letters of a Stoic by Seneca. So do you follow this? One side says, man, you need to be happy. Well, you're miserable because of all these desires. You've got to just keep suppressing your desires. Focus on those things, and, and you're going to be happy. And you read a state of being. You, you, you notice what this is. It's self-improvement. I gotta stop this and stop that and stop this and not want that. And I, and if I do all that and just say, I got a roof over my head and food on my table, life is good. Nothing wrong with contentment, right? Contentment's biblical. But the thing is, it's not about being content. It's about reaching a state of perfection, a perfect being. It's about self-improvement to the point where now they even get really closer to becoming that sage, which they could never become. Hmm, interesting. The Stoics on the other side said, man, I've been there, tried that. I just can't seem to handle all those desires. Because something's come against me that I have no control over. And, and health and illness and tragedy. And all I could do is write this off to the goddess Fortuna. I said, well, she's in control. And if she decides the ill is going to come my way, what can I do? All I could do is wait and hope. And trust the goddess Fortuna or for to, you know, wipe me away for all eternity. Wow, that's, that's kind of like, wow. You know, just, just get in there and hang in there. So what you really need is courage and strength. Now, here it is. Here's one is pure self-improvement and, and all these illnesses that may befall them or other problems. They're like, it's not about that. It's just me suppressing my desires for other things. And the Stoics come along and say, no, oh, I can't suppress my desires. He says, it's not about that. It's just, come on, Lady Luck, come on. I know this will pass. You know, 
both of these really had some issues. And so they come at this, here their belief system, they come at Paul. And they're saying, Paul, you're a seed picker. You're just trying to get the scraps that fall by the wayside. Both of these schools were in contrast to each other, but both of them came together against their new common intruder, Paul. And they say, hey, let's team up. We've got to get this guy. We've got to get him out of here. And it's interesting that while they wanted to usher him out or embarrass him at the marketplace, the people come along in verse 19, and they say, they took him to the to uh, Mars Hill. They said, no, may we know what this new doctrine is that you speak of? We, no, 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 don't leave. We want you to come. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners spent their time in nothing else but either the telling or hearing of some new thing. So here the scholars, the philosophers, are trying to get rid of Paul. And all the crowd's like, no, 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 no. Okay, don't worry about those guys. Come on, come on up on this hill. And come up here in Mars Hill now. Tell us. We all want to hear this. You know what's funny about that? If you were a pure Epicurean, and now they're sweeping him away to hear about it, you have to suppress your desires to want to wring his neck or to yell at the people. You want to say, oh, wait a minute. No, I'm just content with shelter and food, if you must listen to him, go. You see, so the Epicureans got a problem. They can't stop him. And then the Stoic over here, all he could do is write it off the bad luck for today. Man, I thought we could intervene this, but, you know, the goddess Fortunus took him away, and off he goes. All we can do is wait it out. So it's kind of funny. Both of their philosophies actually worked against them when the crowd swept them away and wanted to hear more. When I look at this text... The bottom line is, both of them had motivations, things that moved them in life. And what it was that moved them, even the scholars, or excuse me, the, not the scholars, but the, the crowds, they were moved by knowledge. They just wanted to learn something else. They just wanted to put it in their, their inventory of, of knowledge. And not for the sake of changing their life, but the sake of having more knowledge. They, they said, man, I just want to give me something more to learn. We would label them the Mr. Know-it-alls. You know? They're the ones that have to be the smartest one in the room. They're the ones that they could be so vain, they, I bet you think the sermon's about them, don't they? Don't they? <laughs> we see it. But it's interesting that all they wanted was knowledge. And the Scripture says, knowledge puffs up, just makes prideful. 2 Timothy 3.7 says, they are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of truth. Isn't that amazing? They're ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us, or 3.7. So they're always learning these things. And they think they got truth, but they never come to it. The sad part was that while the crowds were moved by knowledge and their philosophy... Paul was moved by something different. He took a tour of the town. He walked through town. He saw their high cultured city. Saw their schools of philosophy. He saw the statues. He saw the Acropolis. He saw Mars Hill. He saw the amphitheaters. He saw how religious they were. So much so they don't even want to miss a god if there's one out there. And yet he was moved with the reality that even though it seemed like they had it all together, 
they realized that they really had nothing. Without God, man is in a desperate search for happiness. A desperate search for reason for existing and being. Purpose. A desperate search for contentment. Man, apart from God, is in a desperate search for self-control over desires that they don't like. And they say, I wish I could just control this. And so they're in this desperate search for it. Man is in a desperate search for answers in life and answers to life's struggles. And they're in a desperate search to say, how do I reason out this bad thing that's coming into my life and this, this tragedy or this illness or whatever it might be. And they're in a desperate struggle for answers. But the way they are seeking it is through knowledge and through philosophy rather than through the true and living God that created them, not them creating God. So they tried to find the answers in the gods they made rather than in the God that made them. The sad part is, Paul looked around at their relentless pursuit of this happiness and this state of being, which their own doctrine taught them was unattainable. And it said in verse 16, he was provoked in his spirit. The word literally means to stir to anger. Wow, he's an apostle. He shouldn't be angry. (laughs) No, it means he was stirred to anger. He was not angry at the people. He was angry at the deception of evil. He was angry at self-deception of philosophy. He was angry at the fact that these people are being blinded and sucked deeper and deeper into this this uh, non-truth-revealing philosophy, even though they thought they were after truth. We hear say, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Paul hated to see what was happening to these people. And so Paul took action. He went through the town and he said, man, look at this. They are getting sucked down into this whirlpool of philosophy, of, of this knowledge-seeking of false gods, and and all the time they don't realize how desperate they are, desperate for happiness, desperate for something to fill the hole in their heart. A hole that is so big that only God can fill it. And that's what man does apart from God. They're always trying to fill that void. Fill that emptiness. And, And so they'll come up with all these belief systems, all these religions, all these self improvement techniques. And yet, when it's all said and done, they still come up empty. And the sad part is, it's not only that they come up empty, they come up more discouraged than they were when they started. Because they started Epicureanism and it didn't work. (laughs) And they said, man, I'm really empty. Let's create Stoicism. And then they started in Stoicism. Guess what? That wasn't working. Even though they tried to convince all the people there that it's working. And a lot of them followed with their belief. And yet they knew inside it didn't work. See, Paul took action. He was moved by their need. He did not judge them for what they were doing. He didn't judge them for what they were teaching. He did not argue with them on a philosophical level. He did not denigrate them and put them down or mock them for their foolish thinking. Instead, he ministered to them and just spoke truth to them. He wasn't intimidated by their philosophical prowess. Sometimes we are intimidated. Wow, they're too philosophical. Nor was he holier than thou. Let me tell you something. Paul was highly educated. He was a lawyer. He was a prosecuting attorney for many years. He could have stood toe-to-toe with these guys and had an intellectual jousting match with them 
and held his ground. But he does, we don't argue that way. We don't get on, try to argue from their position. We just speak the truth with a loving heart, with the Spirit of God, using the Word of God. God bless you. And that's exactly what Paul did. He found common ground. These are very religious. Here's some common ground. Wow, I see you have this inscription to the unknown God. Good news, I'm here to tell you who He is. And, and they're, all, they're all ears. Until they got to the part they didn't. Everybody's all ears until so they hit the part they don't like. No, then we shut him off. You see, he was very respectful, very gentle in his persuasion. But the fact is, he had a heart for these people. And friends, we need to have the eyes of God to see people as God sees people. We need to have the heart of God to move towards people as God moves towards them. And we need to have the Spirit of God to use the Word of God with a loving and humble heart. And as you encounter people in a gentle way, and as you talk with them from a loving heart and realize they're really desperate inside without God, even if it looks like they have it all together, they're still desperate inside. As you approach them, let me tell you, some will mock you, but some will believe. Some will wait for a later date, just a seed or watering it today. Some may go on to be ministers of the gospel like those mentioned in our text. The thing was, Paul's job was to simply share the truth. Paul's job was not to save him. Paul's job was simply share the truth. And by the way, Paul remembered how obstinate he was before he got saved. And so he just laid it out. Friends, isn't it interesting that this is the only city he moves on from here to Corinth? It's the only city he did not get chased out by a riot or a threat of his life. And we were ready to write these philosophers off and these people of Athens off, but it's the only city. They sat there, they listened to the argument, some disagreed, some agreed, some said, listen later. But they listened to it, and Paul walked out of the town on his own accord without being chased out on a rail, walks out, and he'll go to Athens, or go to Corinth. First city in Europe that he doesn't get chased out of. Gentle persuasion. Not, mean, not saying he wasn't gentle in the other places, he was. It was the rabble-rousers, remember? But they're up, they up in Berea. They haven't had time to sail down to Athens yet. So he's like, wow, this is a great opportunity to share the gospel. Let me tell you something. That's what God calls us to. Go out to crowds. They'll have their philosophies. They'll have their beliefs. Don't go after their belief system. Don't go after their upbringing. Don't go after their philosophy. Listen, you go after those things, you will lose somebody very quickly. Trust me, I did when I was first saved. I went after all, I beat up on all the saints and all these other belief systems. Don't go after that. Just speak the truth, speak it in love, and just let God do His thing. God knows what He's doing. Amen? And God wants to reach these people, even these people at Athens. He goes, no, go in there. Talk to them. Tell them about me. Tell them how I rose from the dead. Tell them how I'm here to save them. That's all. Father, thank You for meeting with us today. Thank You for moving amongst us. And Lord, as we think of these people, and we think of even their belief system, and even today, Lord, it, we don't realize how much it permeates our thoughts. And it permeates our lives. And even as Christians, it permeates our belief system. We're always trying to suppress things in our lives, rather than let the Spirit of God change us. We're always thinking if we could just suppress this desire, or change this. We're always after self-improvement, rather than God-improvement rather than the gift and the fruit of spiritual 
self-control. Father, these are things your Spirit will do in us. It is God that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Help us, Lord, simply to yield to your Spirit as you move in our hearts. Help us not to adopt these philosophies and help us not to, to run from them, not to be afraid of them, for we have the truth. We have the truth. There is a God that loves them, who sent His Son to die on the cross, who is willing to forgive all their sins if they would only place their faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Help us to share that great truth. Lord, we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. We're going to... We're only going to spend a minute on the invitation here. Maybe you're here. Maybe you have a need. Maybe you haven't been saved yet. It's a great day to get saved. Come. There'll be people here to pray. We're only going to take a couple minutes. I know there's things going on, and we're going to dismiss you to that. But as we close in prayer, if you have a need, folks will be here to pray.